First Timothy. Any thoughts? Are we learning anything? <laughs> I hope so. Uh, we are going to be working on verses 16 through 18 this morning. Before we do that, I just want to go back and, uh, and read from verse 12 down to help us keep things in context a little bit. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. So they, there you have the Apostle Paul praising God, thanking God for giving him the privilege of putting him into service. Uh, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, and yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Just remember that this is, Paul's talking about his pre-Christian life, how he was this, uh, this Pharisee and he was persecuting the church of Jesus Christ to the utmost, probably or possibly more than anyone else in his day was. Then through that, he was blaspheming God, as he understands now, and he was a persecutor. And uh, he was, he actually, he believed, and this is one of the things different about Paul than you're going to find with some people. And as he believed that he was working for God, he believed that he was doing what God wanted him to do. He was fully and absolutely convinced of all of that. But he knows that even though he was a great violator of God's law, he was a very great sinner, God had shown him abundant mercy. And I'm hoping that as we've considered that, all of us have given some thought to the same thing. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which we are found, we ha- are found in Christ Jesus. And then this passage, this verse that we kind of ended up on last week, it is a, true, a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom, among whom I am foremost of all. I'm hoping that as we've read through this, we've studied through this particular part of this passage over the last couple of weeks, that maybe it's caused you to think a little bit about where you were and how you were and, and all of that before you came to know Jesus. And maybe from the perspective you're at now, maybe you've been a believer for years now, you can look back and you can go, oh my goodness, I was really that bad. Verse 16 through 18. And yet, for this reason, I found mercy in order that in, uh, in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king eternally, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever uh, and ever. Verse 16, I've translated, but for the sake of this, I found mercy in order that in me as a foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might demonstrate all patience as an example for those who would believe on him for eternal life. 
there have been a lot of changes that have taken place in the life of the Apostle Paul. Uh, and one of those is this. Is he's gone from being a person of great arrogance and pride and puff up, puffed up and, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to being a very humble person. Because one of the things that we really need to understand here and take to heart in all of this is he understands that he deserves no credit for any good that has come out of any of it. That whatever good has come as a result of Paul in his life and his ministry is because of what God has done through Paul and in Paul. The truth is this, guys. It's never a good idea to use yourself as an example, right? I mean, you know that. You understand that. That uh, it's very easy if you use yourself as an example, you're trying to teach a particular biblical principle or whatever, and you use yourself as an example, it's easy for you to come off as arrogant or prideful, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so I want to encourage you to think about that before you use yourself as an example. People do it all the time. But let me tell you, sometimes it's not received very well because it can come across as being very arrogant and prideful. In other words, if you want to see a great work of God, just look at me, that sort of thing. But the fact of the matter is, is this is exactly what Paul does. He uses himself as an example. Why does he do that? He does it because he sees himself as being the very greatest example that he knows of to teach the lesson he's trying to teach. He might think about this person or that person, maybe someone that through his ministries come to Jesus and and, and great changes have gone on in their life. But when it comes right down to it, Paul knows himself better than he knows anybody else. So as far as he goes, who could possibly be a better example than himself of teaching the principles that he's attempting to teach in this particular part of this passage? Just remember this. Paul knows this. That in his day, he probably would have been voted the least likely person to become a Christian. And as we said last week, very often, those are exactly the people that God often calls to himself. Are the people that no one else would ever believe would come to faith in Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about how God has used the foolish of the world to shame the wise. And this, that, and the other. And I just want you to know something this morning. You may look at yourself and you may see yourself as being just kind of foolish and you don't know much and, uh, you know, you have this issue and you have that issue. Uh, But let me tell you something. If that's you, you may be next. (laughs) Because when God does things, he does them so often through people that no one would ever believe. So who gets the credit? The person 
or God himself. Where credit is due. In other words, sometimes when people come to faith, we know, we know without a doubt, this is a God thing. God had to do this. Apart from God, such a thing was impossible. I was talking with a few people just recently, and I do think there's a, there's a sense today in which people are downplaying the seriousness of sin. Uh, and I'm talking about believers sometimes who have adopted the attitude kind of like, like this, and that is, well, I know that I sin, and I'm a sinner, and I just kind of have to learn to live with it. But I want you to know something. That mentality, that attitude is not in Scripture anywhere. I mean, the, the, the Bible actually declares to us that we are to be in, at work putting sin to death in us, not accepting it and just learning to live with it. But to be fighting with it, just be striving with it all the time. Just remember, every sin is the equivalent of cosmic rebellion against Almighty God, and he abhors it. I want you to think for a minute. Do you hate anything? Is there anything that you really hate? There's got to be at least one or two things that you really, really hate that you just absolutely abhor. But let me tell you, as much as you may hate it, as much as you may abhor it, it is nothing compared to how God feels about one single, what you and I would call itsy-bitsy, teeny-tiny sin. Just think about this. The Lord had to have patiently abhorred and at the same time endured even the existence of pre-Christian Paul. Can you imagine? Much like the Lord endures the existence of Satan. We talked about this recently. There's a question, and I don't have the answer for it, and no one has the answer for it except God himself. That is, if God created all things good, where did evil come from? The truth is this, is the Bible doesn't answer that question, and so I can't answer it either. But we know that it exists because God allows it. He can snuff it out at any moment. And, 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 and let me tell you, his hatred of it drives him to do that. But... He's not only a God who hates sin, he's also a God who loves sinners. We understand that one of these days that God will say, enough is enough. Jesus will come back and every person that ever breathes life will stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. Everybody. 
And we would like to think that everyone on that day will, will fare well, but we understand that there is very clear in the Bible that only those who know Jesus as Lord and Savior will be blessed in that judgment. Have you ever thought about something like this? Some of you may be of those very few who can't remember a time in your life you did not believe. There are people that fit in that category. Most of the people in this room don't fit in that category. However, you can remember a time when you were unbelieving. Have you ever thought about what it took for God to endure your utter and absolute rebellion against him for all of those years, all that time? But then again, we know that God allows these things to happen. And because we are his people and he loves us, we know that when things like this happen in regard to us, they happen for a good reason, and that is this. He loves us, and he's reshaping us, and he's making us into something that we were not before, and he's taking his time very often about doing that, but we know that he has a goal in it, and eventually that that we are going to come to the point where sin is going to be taken away from us completely, and we'll be glorified, and we will be with him for all of eternity in paradise. Right. We're not quite there just yet. Just like Paul, we found mercy. We who uh, look upon ourselves as the foremost sinners of all. For a lot of reasons. And one of those is that Jesus would demonstrate his perfect patience in us as an example. But now to the eternal king, immortal, unseen, God alone, be honor and glory, always and forever. Notice what we were praying this morning. Our prayers are typically guided by our asking of God for things. Every now and then I will challenge you with this to just to just do this. Just do this. Next time you sit down and pray in quiet, don't ask God for anything. Praise God for who he is and let that be the end of it. 
We're all guilty of it. We sit around in prayer breakfast on Wednesday morning, and I know the ladies probably do the same thing. And what we're talking about is so-and-so needs you know, healing from this disease and this surgery's coming up and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So so-and-so struggling financially, help my children, you know, this kind of thing. How often do we spend much time at all in prayer doing nothing but praising God? But here you find Paul right here in the middle of this letter to Timothy uttering this little short prayer. Praising God. The eternal king. And what he's doing here is this, is he's giving credit where credit is due. He's been talking about pre-Christian Paul, and he's been talking about the mercy and the grace that he's received from God, and as he considers those things, the only thing he can do is praise the God who has granted those to him. You'll notice that we sang this this morning, right? That these words are incorporated into one of these hymns. What Paul gives here is an incomplete list of some of the attributes of God. He only mentions three. There's lots of other ones. These are the things about God that set him apart from everything else. He's eternal. Now, let me ask you something. Can you really wrap your head around the idea of of, of eternity? The idea that there is a being, a God, who has always been and who always will be, period. No beginning. Now, that just doesn't even make sense to people. Because we look upon everything as this has to have a beginning. Did you have a beginning? Did I have a beginning? Did this building have a beginning? Did this earth have a beginning? Did this universe have a beginning? The answer to all of this is yes, 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 right? But what we're talking about here is a being who is so great. That being has always been, always. And let me tell you, that to be God, you must be eternal. There are a lot of people today who believe that science has disproven a lot of the stuff that the Bible teaches. But I would stand here as a scientist this morning saying to you that's just not true at all. To to what I see over more and more and more is that science is proving the absolute necessity of God. As we look at things, we look at life, and we look at the universe, and we see the, the further we go, the more complex it is. 
not more simple it is, more complex it is the further we go. And it should leave people to lead people to the idea that there must be a being who has done all of this, who is continuing to do all of this. So what I'm telling you this morning, it's not just that it's a good idea that God's eternal. What I'm telling you is that for you and I to be here for this universe to exist, God must be eternal. There had to be something before there was anything else. Or someone. And more likely what we're talking about here is a someone. Because people do things. Things themselves don't do things. See, one of the things with modern scientists today who do not believe in the existence of God, they're stuck with this question, and that is, how can anything come out of nothing? See that? Only possible answer to that question is this, is the only way that can be is if there is, in fact, a person, or something at least, that is eternal. Otherwise, there would be nothing. Does that make sense? Pretty reasonable, isn't it? He's also imperishable or immortal. He is the only being that is incapable, incapable of non-existing. In other words, he must exist. And he's always existed, and he is existing, and he always will exist. There's a lot of talk today going around about God's not dead. He's surely alive. Have you heard the the music, the song, people singing us? You know, it's in a response to the the, the modern scientific uh, atheistic community. Because there are a lot of people, there are a lot of people, and some of you have had this thought too, you believe this maybe a little bit, and that is that modern science is disproving the existence of God. And there are people who believe that science has finally put the nail in God's coffin. It's not only absolutely essential, necessary, that he is eternal, But it's also absolutely necessary that he must, in fact, be. I mean, can you cease to exist? You could, right? Can you conceive of a being who just just, just exists, period, and there's no question of non-existence in regard to that being? Let me just tell you something. If God ever stopped to exist, everything else would too. There would be nothing. That's how dependent all of creation is upon him for its existence. He's unseen or invisible. 
Now, I know that some of you believe that God exists. Have you ever seen him with your own two eyes? Literally. Have you? Now, see, we're taught that we're supposed to, we're supposed to trust in our five senses, right? Which would be what? Sight, hearing, smell, taste, touching, or feeling, right? We've talked a little bit about this in more recent weeks. But God has given us these gifts. These are gifts that God has given to us so that we can make perception of the physical world around us and even within us. And we know this because some of you have limited eyesight. Some of you have limited hearing, which I'm guilty of both of those. Uh, and my hearing's getting worse and worse uh, and, and, and all of that. Uh, as you get older, too, you'll notice that your feeling's not quite what it used to be and your smeller doesn't work like it used to and your tasting's not so great anymore, Right? But can you imagine what it would be like living in, uh, in this world without having the ability to, to have those five senses? And we know this. If you just take one of those away, that it really inhibits that person in some ways from experiencing the fullness of the world and creation. But the fact is this, guys, that we know that there are things that exist that we can't perceive directly. You know what materialism is? It's the idea that the material is the only thing that exists. Therefore, you must be able to materially experience it. It's got to be something you can see and something you can touch, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if it doesn't have those attributes, then it doesn't exist. But let me tell you, science has already disproven that idea. Because we know that there are things that exist that we can't see, that we can't smell, that we can't hear, that we can't feel, that we can't whatever the other one was. For instance, you ever had an x-ray? Have you had an x-ray? Well, we all have. We've gone to the dentist, even the kids. You kids ever have x-ray on your teeth? Huh? Could you, could you see it? Could you see the x-ray? Could you feel the x-ray? You had those little tingly sensations with the x-rays were going through your body? Hey, did you uh, smell it? Did you hear it? Et cetera, et cetera. And the answer to all that is no. But we do know that x-rays exist, right? Because we can use those to make nice pictures of bones inside our bodies and etc. Right? So this idea that you have to be able to perceive things for them to exist is ridiculous. There's all kinds of things that exist. That's just one example. We know that things that exist that we cannot perceive directly. And what about Jesus? He did so many things. We could sit here all day and probably come up with new ideas about things that we had never even thought about that Jesus actually was a part of accomplishing or something he did in his life by which we benefit. Because in Jesus Christ, for the first time ever, God himself became material. 
so that he could be seen, so he could be touched, so he could be smelled maybe, maybe not tasted. You get the point? That if Jesus had not come into the world, yes, we would not have a Savior, but yes, you and I would not be able to know God as we know him because he has made himself so greatly known in the person of Jesus. God directly entered into the physical realm to make himself known to people. To save sinners, as Paul has already mentioned. But also for the purpose of showing himself to us in a way that we could perceive it directly. And the truth is that because God is all of these things that we're talking about, and far more, Paul just touches on these attributes of God in this little prayer. There's lots more of them we we could spend hours and hours talking about. But because these things are true, there's only one appropriate response. And that is that the God who is eternal, who is immoral, who is unseen. Be honored and glorified. To be acknowledged, to be God, to be worshipped, to be bowed before, to be revered, to be honored, to be loved. We've been talking a lot the last few weeks about how unworthy we were and are, apart from Jesus, of receiving the mercy and grace of God. There's no question about the worthiness of God to be worshipped. He is worthy. And we need to write a song like that. He is worthy. And there is one, actually. Thou art worthy. He ends this prayer with a little word that Jesus used so so many times, and we use it all the time, amen. Have you ever thought about what it means? Do you even know what it means? We, We say amen all the time. Every time we pray, we say amen at the end. It means truly. It means certainly. In other words, what we're saying and what Paul is saying here is this, is may these things that I've prayed be certainly be, truly be. In other words, when we pray for Dave Hiley that his healing, that his eyes would be healed and we say amen, what we're saying there is we've prayed this prayer, may it certainly be.
verse 18, this instruction I put before you, Timothy, my child, according to the prophecies made long ago concerning you in order that by them you may wage the good war or fight the good fight. Paul obviously had a lot of reasons for writing. To encourage Timothy, to advise Timothy, but there's no doubt about it. The primary reason Paul wrote this letter was to instruct Timothy. To instruct him to do a lot of things. And one of those was to stand against those who were teaching false doctrines. Remember that? Back verses. Paul had encountered that when he was in Ephesus and he, when he left there and he left Timothy there in his place. He knew the battle would still be raging. And let me tell you, it's so easy when you're talking to people sometimes to almost give in to ideas. And say, well, maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I've misread the Bible or, you know, something, something along those lines. Let me ask you this. Have you ever been tempted to downplay something like predestination or election when you're talking to people about Jesus. I want you to just know this, and this is this, because let me let me just tell you, it is a very difficult biblical doctrine. But at this fact of the matter is, it is a biblical doctrine. Therefore, we teach it. We believe it. Does that mean we understand it? No. But it is so clear in Scripture not to teach it would be almost heretical. It comes down to this. Let me ask you something. Do you like everything the Bible says? Everything it says just makes you feel all comfy, cozy inside and, and you just have warm feelings about this, that, and the other. No. The Bible says some very great and beautiful things, but it's some very challenging things, things that challenge us very deep down in our very being. He makes references to prophecies that were being, had been made about Timothy. Now, what were they? Well, we don't know. But Paul makes reference to the fact here that when, when Timothy came to, uh, to faith in Jesus Christ, or God had set Timothy apart for a special purpose as a leader in the church, that there were prophecies made about him. Again, we don't know what those prophecies were. Just he makes references, reference to them right here. That things have been said about Timothy. Message from God conveyed to man in regard to Timothy. Same thing happened to the Apostle Paul. Right? I would imagine, because his calling is very similar to Paul's, that the prophecies about him were very similar to the things that were said about Paul. Remember Ananias and Damascus who had never met Paul ever. 
But Jesus talked to him before he met Paul. He had heard about Paul. And what he heard about Paul was he was persecuting the mess out of Christians in Jerusalem. So his impression of Paul was not good. But this is what Jesus said to Ananias about Paul. He has been chosen, chosen by Jesus himself to be his instrument to bear his name before the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel. Now, I would imagine the prophecies about Timothy were something probably along the same line. Because he was to continue the ministry that Paul started. Because what Paul was doing was continuing the ministry that Jesus started. There's something else that Jesus revealed there that he must suffer for my name's sake. So this calling was not going to be a bed of roses. There were going to be challenges. There were going to be up here battles. There were going to be difficult times. I would say it's very likely that every pastor or teacher at times questions whether they've truly been called to be one. When things get difficult, people are upset, etc. You may not realize it, but depression is very common amongst pastors. Seriously. Most people that would be very surprising to because pastors are supposed to be these people that are just, you know, they just they just have such a great faith in God, you know, everything is just wonderful, and they're the ones who always pick everybody else up and so on and so on and so on. But you need to understand that pastors very often deal with depression regularly. It comes with a turf. You ever hear of Depression Monday? <laughs> Very often, pastors are depressed on Monday morning. Okay. Now, why would that be true? Well, it's partly because of the spiritual high of Sunday. You know, you spend all week preparing and, you know, and do that, and then you do your, your thing on Sunday and all that. And then Monday, you think about all the things you should have said that you didn't say and the things that you did say you shouldn't have said and this, that, and the other and all the imperfections of the worship service and this, that, and the other. And, 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 and what about the visitors and, you know, and, and all that other kind of stuff? But they don't stay there. This seriously, guys, is the reason why most pastors take Monday off. Because it's a hard day. So how do they get beyond it? Week by week. There has to be some means by which they are reaffirmed of their calling. Right? 
In other words, the time when they can think back and they can remember that moment when they knew they didn't even have a choice in the matter that God had called them into the ministry. It wasn't something they sought. It's not something they necessarily desired. They saw their weaknesses. They saw their difficulties. They saw their unworthiness. And there's no other explanation that eventually God convinced them that this is his calling for them. Some really disturbing statistics have come out in recent years. And one of those is this. Of course, I haven't fact-checked this. This is just something I read a couple of years ago. And that is in the first five years of ministry, 80% of the people that enter into it leave it. 80%. And the sad thing, the thing that's even sadder than that, is 50% of those who leave will never, ever in the rest of their life darken a church door again. Not too long ago, I was reading this, this article in, in the newspaper. I don't read the newspaper very often, but I was reading this article, and it was about the, ten, the list of the ten most stressful jobs. So I'm tearing through there because I just know being a pastor was going to be on that top ten. But it wasn't. It wasn't even mentioned. The reason I'm here this morning, guys, is because if God spoke to me 25 years ago, 30 years ago, not in words I heard, I didn't see him, I didn't smell him, certainly didn't taste him, but I'll die, I'll go to my deathbed believing that he spoke to me. And what he told me over and over again was, you are not where I want you to be. You're not doing what I want you to do. See, that's what I go back to. That's what gets me beyond Mondays. You know how unqualified you are. You know how unworthy you are. You know how weak and feeble you are. But God is great and God is good. And God is mighty in spite of you. It's remembering things like this. And you, every one of you should be able to liken where you're at to that to some degree. There was a time when you changed, when, when the Spirit of God entered into you. And remembering that time, being able to remember that time, sometimes is the only thing that's going to help.
last week of classes last week for the semester, and I'm going, hallelujah. Every time I get to the end of the semester, I'm thinking, why in the heck do I do this? <laughs> it's like, you know, it starts out, things are optimistic at the very beginning, but by the t- end of the class, you're, you're more ready for it to be done than the students are, and that says a lot right there. But I was talking with them, and I've had some, heart, some heart, deep heart discussions with these kids, these young people. And one of the things I told them the other day was this. I said, if you're living exactly the same way now that you were three months ago before we started this class, then I have not taught you one single What about this context? Anyway, we'll move on next week. Pick up where we left off. I want to thank everybody this morning for